I would encourage you to open the infallible record this morning to the little epistle of Jude. We are continuing to go through Jude verse by verse, and this morning we come to verse 8 through verse 13. But before I read the text and expand upon it, I'd like you to think with me for a moment. What a horrible thing it is to be deceived. We've all experienced that. In fact, it's almost routine these days in American politics to be deceived. We've all experienced some salesman or some con artist or perhaps even a family member that's living a double life. We've all experienced deception. And though we hate to be deceived, I find it interesting how easy it is for us to be deceived and to even deceive ourselves. When the Lord taught us to pray in Matthew 6, one of the things he taught is that we are to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, why is that? Because we're so easily deceived. We are drawn to temptation, to sin like a moth is drawn to a flame. Indeed, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is more deceitful than all else and it is desperately sick. Yet seldom do we take our proclivity to be deceived very seriously. Paul warned Christians in Ephesians verse 4 beginning in verse 22. He said in reference to your former manner of life. He goes on to say lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And he went on to say, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I believe that a lack of discernment is probably one of the greatest dangers in the church today. We are easily deceived and there are many deceivers Proverbs 14 and verse 8 says the wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Now, may I remind you, because of our propensity to be deceived and because of the importance of knowing the truth of the word of God, Jude has come to us and exhorted us to contend earnestly for the faith. For the scriptures that was once for all delivered to the saints. And he continues to go to great lengths to warn us about deceivers who secretly snake their way into the church and seduce us with lies. False teachers, apostates, false prophets, dreamers, phony visionaries, seducers. Spiritual predators. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 13, the Apostle Paul warned of the same thing. He described them as false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Indeed, in most cases, deceivers have themselves been deceived. Many of them are unwitting pawns on a satanic chessboard, having followed some false teacher themselves, and certainly following the father of lies, And may I remind you that all of this began in the garden when Satan came and deceived Eve. You will recall in Genesis 3, 1, God tells us now the serpent was more crafty, literally more deceitful than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And it goes on to tell us how through Satan, Eve was deceived and Adam was deceived. 
And the deception of sin was brought into the world and sin unto all men. We would all do well, I believe, to be reminded of the enemy of our souls, Satan, that serpent, Nahash in Hebrew, which means a hissing creature, a snake. That's what the serpent was in Genesis 3.1. And the verb form of that term means to hiss or to whisper, to even whisper a magical spell. And related terms that we find of this word used in the Old Testament describe those who practice sorcery. Those who give oracles, who foretell the future. And of course, divination was an occultic practice strictly forbidden in Scripture. And friends, may I remind you that Satan was the original hisser. He was the original quintessential deceiver, the father of lies, who has employed down through redemptive history many people to be his emissaries of deception. Men and women equally seductive and deadly. You may recall that Satan was the original created musician in heaven, once in charge of heavenly music and praise. He was the anointed cherub. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, Ezekiel tells us. His name was Lucifer. The light bearer is what it means. That became filled with pride. The one that was cast out from heaven. And now appears in the world today as an angel of light. Lucifer, the son of the morning who opposes Christ, the bright and morning star, the prince in the power of the air, the God of this world that works in the sons of disobedience. And I want to remind you before we come to the text this morning that indeed it is Satan's greatest joy to deceive us, to deceive the saints in particular. And he is absolutely ingenious in finding ways to do so. And the way he does it primarily is by taking large elements of truth and tainting it with little elements of deception. It's like poisonous snake venom. You've heard me say this before. Ninety percent of that venom is protein. Won't hurt you. But it's that ten percent that will kill you. The truth found in heresy becomes that necessary bait that Satan uses to hook undiscerning people. And then almost imperceptibly, the error within that heresy begins to gradually destroy well, this was Jude's passionate concern, a concern that all faithful shepherds also have as they shepherd their flock. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us in verse 3, But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Indeed, Jesus has warned us in Matthew 7 that there will be deceivers who will disguise themselves as pastors. And yet inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And Paul warns us in Acts 20 to be on guard because savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And friends, I want you to be on the alert this morning as you hear the truths of the Word of God and try to apply them to your own life. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2 that they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, that they will exploit you with false words. And all you have to do is listen to some of the so-called Christian music that you hear today, and you will hear those false words. All you need to do is turn on your television and see much of what airs calling itself Christian television, and you will see and hear 
false teachers that will exploit you with false words. And ultimately, their purpose, as we learned when we studied Second Peter, is to exploit people and to gain power and popularity, to find sexual gratification, and to somehow satisfy their greed. Their methods will be secret. Their message will be sacrilegious. Their masquerade will be seductive. Their morals will be scandalous and their motives will be selfish. Now, today in Jude, verses 8 through 13, we are going to get yet another detailed description of these deceivers. This will basically be what I would like to think a portrait of an apostate that God himself paints on the canvas of divine revelation. And if we can imagine this portrait, what we're going to see will be Satan, the prince and the power of the air, transmitting and instructing demonic forces. I should say transmitting through demonic forces, various deceptive lies to people. You will see the demons lurking in the shadows. If you look at the picture, you will see in the distance the ancient wickedness of Cain and Balaam and Korah and the tragic judgment that fell upon them. If you look in the foreground of this painting, you will see rough water. And if you look real close, you will see the shadow of the rocky reefs just below the surface. And you will see shipwrecked souls scattered all along the shoreline, having been dashed to pieces on the hidden reefs of apostate deception. And if you look up into the sky, you will see dark clouds that promise life-giving rain, but never delivering. You will see wild waves casting up shame like foam upon the shores. And you will also look into the sky and see shooting stars with the names of various apostates upon them that brilliantly light up for a moment and then gradually disappear into the black hole of eternal judgment. Let's read the text beginning in verse 8. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Here the Holy Spirit paints his portrait of apostates by describing Three general categories of things. Let me give them to you. First, we're going to see four character traits of false teachers. And secondly, we will see three examples of Old Testament counterparts of false teachers. And then thirdly, the Spirit of God reveals to us through Jude five illustrations from nature describing their wickedness. I hope you get the idea here, my friends, that God is very concerned that we have all of the necessary information to be able to spot them, to be able to avoid them, to be able to rebuke them. First, let's look at the four character, character traits. Notice in verse 8, he says, yet in the same manner, in other words, he's saying like the wickedness of the apostate Israelites and angels and sexual perverts of Sodom and Gomorrah, described in verses 5 through 7, in the same manner, these men also by dreaming 
defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Four character traits. They're dreamers. They defile the flesh. They reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Now, what is he saying? Well, first of all, he says they are dreamers. And what we will see is they are phony prophets receiving demonic visions. The word dreaming in the original language, inapniazo, it's an interesting term. It means to dream or to see even delusions. And we see it here regarding these apostate false teachers who are essentially dreamers who receive satanic information through dreams and through visions. In fact, the Apostle Paul spoke of this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And the grammar there would indicate that these are doctrines that demons are giving to men and to women. You see, Satan has deceived these people by false doctrines, by visions of deception. These who are self-appointed prophets and apostles and pastors. And they imagine all manner of things that are not true. They will dream things inspired by Satan that will contain large elements of truth, but are ultimately tainted by the errors of deception. Now, remember here, Jude has just exhorted us to contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, for Scripture. To fight for the Scripture, for the canon of Scripture. And now we're going to understand a little bit better why. You see, Jude is describing phony visionaries. Those who are both ignorant and unsubmissive to the truth of Scripture. Those who insist upon polluting God's pure and final revelation for which we contend with all kinds of special revelations. Now, keep in mind that these are people unlike the Old Testament and New Testament prophets. That was something very different. Those people were given direct, inspired revelation from God that was authoritative and binding on the entire body of Christ, on the church. And of course, as we have argued before in great length, that those divine gifts ceased when the canon of Scripture was finally completed. They were used to authenticate both the message as well as the messenger. But the Greek term that Jude uses here for dream is not the normal term that is used. It's very interesting here. This is a unique term that was used only one other place in the New Testament. And that's in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. It's a term that we find there used to describe revelatory dreams associated with visions and prophecies given directly from God to man. And it's fascinating that the Spirit of God would use this term even in the context of these false prophets that he so vehemently, vehemently denounces. Now, why would he do that? Well, let me give you the context, first of all, of Acts 2, where this term is found. You remember it was in Peter's message there on the day of Pentecost. It was a marvelous day. The Holy Spirit had come and all manner of miraculous things were beginning to take place. And especially the miracle of tongues where various believers were suddenly able to articulate the truths of the gospel in languages that they had not previously known. And people were beginning to hear the truth of God's word in their own language and in verse 6 of Acts 2, we, we read that the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each hearing them speak in his own language. And you will recall the story. The others looked on and thought, my goodness, these are a bunch of drunks. What's going on here? And then Peter finally speaks forth and he says, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. For it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's only nine o'clock. They're not drunk. He went on to say, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now stick with me. Now he's going to quote Joel 2, verses 28 to 29. And here's what he went on to say. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy 
and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. There's the same term translated into the Greek that Jude uses to describe the false teachers. Now, let me explain what was going on. You've got to go to Jude. I mean, I'm sorry, you've got to go to Joel to understand the context of what Joel was talking about. The context of Joel's prophecy relates to the millennial kingdom. The theme in Joel is that of the coming eschatological day of the Lord, that coming time of judgment as well as blessing that will come from the tribulation down to the millennial kingdom. And this kind of outpouring of spiritual blessing will occur during the millennial kingdom, and it will ultimately occur when God, by God revealing once again to men through visions and prophecies the truth of His Word. We can even study in Scripture and see that some of this will occur during the time of the tribulation. When the Holy Spirit will once again reveal divine truth to individuals through prophecies and visions. Now, back to what Peter was saying in Acts 2. Peter's saying to the people, hey, they're not drunk. <laughs> and men of Judea, don't, don't be surprised here. Because even as Joel prophesied, God can and will reveal himself through miraculous revelations. And what you're now witnessing is a preview of coming attractions. This is a pre-fulfillment of millennial blessings. And as you know, there in Acts 2, there were many other, and not just in Acts 2, but all through the initial stages of the church when it was being established, there were all manner of signs and wonders that God brought forth to authenticate the message and the messenger and establish the church. Things that are not normative for the church today, but gradually ceased. So, indeed, the term that the Holy Spirit uses in Jude is one that describes revelatory dreams associated with visions and prophecies. But, obviously, in Jude, these are not coming from God. They're coming from another source. You see, false teachers, we know, from reading in Jude and other places, in, in his epistle as well as in Second Peter, we know that they reject divine authority. They reject the lordship of Christ. They despise his word. Again, Peter tells us that they introduce destructive heresies, but they all have a source. And it's either their own imagination or it's Satan and his minions that have communicated to them doctrines of demons. You can look back and look at the life of Joseph Smith with the Mormons and you will see it. You can look at Ellen White and the Seventh-day Adventists and her special revelations. You'll see it. You can look at Oral Roberts. You can look at Benny Hinn. You can look at Joyce Myers. You can look on and on with these kinds of people. Turn on TBN and you will hear it all the time. Yes, let me tell you what God told me. I spoke with him today. And he wants me to tell you such and such. You see, friends, Satan is ever ready to give some type of a special revelation to people who reject the truth. And again, this is why Jude has, is saying, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We see God's hatred of this practice in Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse 1. There we read, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, Concerning which he spoke to you. And by the way, we know that that has happened in the past. It certainly happened with the magicians of Pharaoh. And you've seen that in other places in the scripture. We see it even at times today. But if that happens, if that dreamer of dream or right dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after God's whom you have not known, and let us serve them. And again, let me pause. We see this all the time today in the quasi-evangelical shamanism of like the word faith movement where people 
come up to you and tell you about a God that is not the God of the Bible, even though it sounds like the God of the Bible. This God who is going to heal all of your diseases, who's going to make you rich and prosperous beyond your wildest imagination. So he's saying if if these dreamer of dreams do this, he goes on in Deuteronomy 13 and says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Beloved, I cannot warn you strongly enough. Run from anyone who claims to be receiving divine revelations from God. Run from that. He or she is a dreamer. He or she is a person who has been deceived and who is deceiving. Even as we read here in Deuteronomy 13, you are being tested. Will you follow the Lord your God and obey his word or will you follow the dreamer of dreams? Will you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints or will you be seduced by some phony visionary? So what we see, first of all, in the character traits that Jude gives us of an apostate is they will be a dreamer. But notice, secondly, by dreaming, they defile the flesh. Defile means to stain, to contaminate, to pollute. And the flesh here is a reference to moral as well as physical corruption. See, keep in mind, there's nothing to restrain the flesh in these people, these hypocrites who claim to be spokesmen of God. They're devoid of the spirit, as we see in verse 19 here in Jude. And thus they have convinced themselves of their own salvation, their own spiritual supremacy. They answer to no one. And as a result, they are morally corrupt. They are sexually perverted. Remember, in Second Peter 2.10, we read that they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And in verse 18, they entice others by fleshly desires, by sensuality. And in chapter 3, verse Three, they, they follow after their own lusts. So by dreaming, they defile the flesh. But thirdly, we see also that they reject authority. In other words, they refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember in verse four, they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, which is another word for unbridled living. And they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if you peel back the layers of their external religiosity, you will soon discover a very immoral, angry, I've got all the answers, nobody's going to tell me what to do type of a person. They reject authority. Fourthly, they revile angelic majesties. Revile means to blaspheme. It's literally blasphemeo in the original language. You will recall that there's a parallel passage to this in 2 Peter 2.10. There Peter says that they are daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. In other words, when they blaspheme, when they slander, when they insult angelic doxai, glories, which would be a reference to celestial beings, especially demons, as indicated in verse 11 there in 2 Peter 2. Well, let me explain this again, and we went over it some when we studied Second Peter. But what's going on here is a reference to the defiance of false teachers, that in their arrogance they fearlessly and foolishly insult demons. And many times when you get around them, it, you will hear them mocking Satan, mocking demons, they're binding demons and having you write letters uh, you know, renouncing Satan and all this type of thing, is if they actually have power and authority over the prince and the power of the air and all of his supernatural hosts. There in Second Peter 2 and 11, 
We read, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. In other words, even the holy angels that are exceedingly more powerful than the fallen angels show more caution than this. So here we come to Jude 9 and 10, and we have a similar description of their audacity. There we read that they revile angelic majesties. Then he goes on to say, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. And friends, again, this is a lesson we would all do well to learn. Never, ever personally address Satan and the demons. We're merely to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Rather, we are to cry out to the Lord of hosts, who is our deliverer. And here Jude contrasts the arrogant blasphemies of the apostates with the humble caution of Michael, the archangel, who, according to Daniel 13, was described as one of the chief princes of heaven. Now, evidently, if we understand the context here, when Moses died, for reasons that we do not understand, God commissioned Michael, the archangel, to hide his body. To hide him from Satan, who undoubtedly had some kind of diabolical plan to use his body in some hideous way. And the Lord thwarted all of that. And so Satan evidently confronted Michael concerning the body. Yet what's interesting here is that Michael, the archangel, even Michael refused to exercise his formidable power over Satan and instead called upon the Lord to rebuke him. But apostates who were delusional with pride have no fear of angelic majesties. Instead, verse 10, these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. In other words, here the Spirit of God likens them to animals that have no capacity to reason but function strictly on the basis of instinct to preserve themselves. And he says, by these things, they are destroyed. In other words, because of the depth of their depravity and the breadth of their deceptions, God will pour out his eternal wrath upon them. A sobering, sobering truth. You know, when I was living with this text, especially this week, it kept coming across to me, my, 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 my. God has a serious disdain for these arrogant imposters. He just goes on and on with his stinging rebuke of them. And here we see even more. After he paints the four character traits, we see, secondly, three examples of Old Testament counterparts of these false teachers. Verse 11, he says, Woe to them! Which could be translated this way, Oh, how tragic is the curse of divine judgment! That God has upon them. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and, the, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So, what is he saying here? Well, first of all, they've gone the way of Cain. You will remember Cain was Adam and Eve's firstborn child. We can read that historical account in Genesis 4. And you may recall that Cain chose to disobey God. God's prescribed form of sacrifice and worship, one that would require a blood offering and then chose instead to devise his own way of worship, his own self-styled way of worship. And God saw the wickedness in his heart and refused to accept Cain's sacrifice. But God did accept his brother's sacrifice, Abel's sacrifice. And so what happened? Well, Cain became jealous and in a fit of rage, he killed his brother. And God pronounced a curse upon Cain that the ground that he would till would no longer bear any food, forcing him to live, as the text says, as a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Now, while Jude does not indicate the specific ways that apostates imitate Cain, we can safely assume that somehow, like him, they are rebellious, they are haughty, 
They refuse to worship God in the way that God has prescribed. We do know that they reject his word and replace it with their own. They are envious and resentful, perhaps, of others who are obedient to the word of God, as Cain was towards Abel, and perhaps even showing contempt for genuine believers to the point of having violence in their heart, even to the point of murder. But he has a second Old Testament counterpart that he uses. He says, for pay they have rushed headlong into the bare error of Balaam. Now, again, if I could remind you, when we were in Second Peter 2, in verse 15 through 16, we read that the same parallel there, Peter says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Numbers 22 and through 25 speak of, of Balaam, who was a prophet of God that succumbed to greed. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. And you will remember that he, too, deliberately rejected the word of the Lord. And he conspired with that pagan Moabite king, Balak, to somehow pronounce a curse upon Israel. And God intervened, even using a donkey. There we read in the text that God restrained the madness of the prophet, a man that was out of his mind with greed. And here Jude compares false teachers to these men. You might also recall later in Numbers 25 that God restrained the unfaithful prophet from cursing his people. But Balaam, being a man filled with sexual immorality, devised a scheme to seduce the Jews into being tolerant of their pagan neighbors, causing them to enter in with their pagan religious practices, those of the Moabites and the Midianites. And that deadly ecumenism with the Canaanites resulted in idolatry. It resulted in intermarriage, sexual immorality, and ultimately incited God to wrath and God poured out his vengeance and slaughtered the Midianites as well as the apostate prophet Balaam who was killed by the sword. And it's interesting that Jude says, for pay they have rushed headlong. It could be translated, they run greedily into the error of Balaam. It's interesting, the Greek term there means to, to pour out. It's the idea here of, of they pour themselves out after the object of their desire. Again, the idea is that they have no restraint. They rush headlong after an opportunity that will make them rich and powerful and fulfill their lusts. Like Balaam, the false prophet of old, you must understand Jude is saying that these apostates will slither into the true church. Men and women consumed with greed and sexual immorality. And bring unimaginable destruction upon all who are associated with them. And he gives a third Old Testament counterpart. He says, and they perished and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah, a story found in number 16, was the cousin of Moses. And here he is now also identified with these apostates. Korah was a Levite who had... Certain responsibilities in the tabernacle. He was actually a Kohathite who would have been one that had special privileges and special duties within the tabernacle. And typical of proud, jealous and divisive people. He became mad when he was overlooked for being the priest. And so he concocted some exaggerated and distorted indictment against Moses, accusing Moses of being both self-appointed and unnecessary. And he garnered the support, you will recall, of Dathan and Abiram and 250 other men. And they all joined together in this rebellious coup against Moses, who was God's appointed leader. And he also had the support of many other malcontents, malcontents within the Israeli camp. You will recall that the people were grumbling against Moses. 
So it was easy to kind of garner their support. And as a result of that, we read in number 16, verse 32. God judges them and here's what it says. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they, they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry for they said the earth may swallow us up. And fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. And if you go on to read the story, you will see that God even sent a plague to kill 14,700 other sympathizers that joined in Korah's little coup. Beloved, never underestimate God's utter contempt for those who would trifle with the truth. For those who would somehow reject his word and rebel against his authority. Never discount the severity and the scope of divine judgment that will fall upon all those who follow after these people. I don't know how I can state this in a more serious manner. So on our portrait of an apostate, apostate, we've seen four character traits of these super spiritual predators, and three examples of Old Testament counterparts. And finally, he closes with five simple illustrations from nature describing their wickedness. And again, don't you get the impression that God is very, very serious that we get it, that we see this, that we know how dangerous they can be. The first is an illustration from nature pertaining to hidden reefs. Notice verse 12. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Now, you all know that hidden rocks just beneath the surface of the ocean are deadly to mariners who unexpectedly come upon them. You can crash upon them without seeing them and literally tear a hull all to pieces causing the ship to sink. And the context here and the parallel parallel would be that in ancient services, and, and we know, by the way, that in ancient services, many times they would meet as we would. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper and many times have their own version of a potluck dinner after it was over. And they would share together and sing together. They would do things very similar to what we do even today. But evidently, in those ancient services, the arrogant, controlling, demanding, intimidating, seductive apostates would partake, first of all, of the Lord's Supper without any fear. Here they are, men filled with immorality and greed, filled with demandingness and pride, and yet they're celebrating forgiveness of sins? What a profound mockery. Well, evidently they were doing that, but also dominating the love feasts by using them as an opportunity to advance their own agenda, turning it into a riotous party, a time for gluttony, a time for others to serve them and meet their needs. The text says here, caring only for themselves. And so, friends, the point is simply this, like a like a reef below the surface, their deadly influence would would cause others to shipwreck their lives. We see yet another example from nature. We see that they are clouds, described as clouds without water, carried along by winds. In other words, like a rain cloud. And here in our drought, we could imagine a beautiful, dark cloud coming our way, thinking, oh, thank you, God. There's going to be some rain for our crops and for our fields, for our gardens, for our grass. But these are clouds that promise rain, but never deliver. Can you imagine the disappointment? False teachers make promises many times that God never made. Therefore, they are never able to deliver. 
Matthew 12:43 it's interesting Jesus used the same Greek word here rendered without water to describe unclean spirits you remember that text where the unclean spirits goes out of unregenerate men who try to somehow reform their morality without ever coming to um, um, true saving faith in Christ and truly being transformed and submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And there we read that the unclean spirit in Matthew 12:43 passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. I found that interesting because of the parallel here in Jude's account which underscores again how false teachers are influenced by demonic forces. We have a third illustration from nature in verse 12. He describes them as autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. You can't get any more dead than that, right? Once again, a picture of the utter fruitlessness of their lives and their utter inability to provide a harvest of blessing, even though that's what... They would try to do and seduce others to come to them to eat of their fruit. This type of tree is one that is totally worthless. It's like a a fruit tree that that is stripped bare. Their faith is doubly dead. Their life is barren of spiritual fruit. What you'll find is the lives of those who follow them likewise become increasingly barren of spiritual fruit. And because of their unregenerate nature, they have no spiritual roots that can reach deep into the soil, the moist, rich soil of the spirit that alone can provide life and cause one to bear fruit. And these type of trees being without life are the type that are not merely cut down, but the husbandman will literally uproot these kinds of trees And burn them. A graphic picture of the certain doom that will fall upon apostates. And fourthly, another illustration in verse 13. They're like wild waves of the sea. Casting up their own shame like foam. Here we have the imagery of the ocean and the waves. Causing foam to come up to the surface. And to fall upon the rocks and the shoreline. Something that is wild and out of control. Something that makes great noise. And that's what apostate false teachers do. They're wild. They're out of control. They make great noise. They cause great damage. Their uncontrolled passions roar and crash and foam. They foam up the shame of their wickedness. You will find that in Scripture, the sea is often used as a symbol for those who do not know God and who refuse to be governed by God. People who, like the sea, who have no rest. We read in Isaiah 57, verse 20, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. We see yet another illustration from nature in verse 13. They're described as wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Now, friends, here, these wandering stars would be a reference to what we would sometimes call a shooting star or a meteor. We see them from time to time. All of a sudden, they catch our eye with brilliance and we look at them and they suddenly disappear. What a picture of an apostate. False teachers that promise great spiritual light. They catch everyone's eye. They catch everyone's attention. They burst upon the scene with the blaze of some novel insight or some prophecy or some personal interpretation. And people go, oh, I've seen this happen over and over again. People are enamored with what they see. They're all excited. And then within a few minutes, certainly within a few hours, absolutely within a few days, there's nothing. All you have to do is look at the history of religious fads, religious gurus, 
best-selling authors, artists, musicians. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Well, friends, don't miss the point. You say, my, my, what a graphic, graphic picture. What a detailed portrait of apostasy and false teachers. And again, my my friends, as I close this morning, my challenge to you is to hear the importance of two things. Number one, do not trifle with the truth. Contend earnestly for the faith. And secondly, be discerning. For indeed, there is no other topic in all of Scripture that compares to the stinging condemnation that God gives towards these hypocritical deceivers. And I might add that he is not finished yet, as we will see next week. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, I pray that by your grace and through the power of your word, that somehow the Holy Spirit will move upon our hearts and stir our hearts to be so, so careful with the precious, inspired, infallible Word of God that You have given us. Oh God, would that we be discerning people. Would that we be people that contend earnestly for the faith. Lord, speak to our hearts this day and speak especially to anyone who might be within the sound of my voice that knows nothing of the Savior. Lord, may today be the day that you overwhelm them with such conviction that they see their sin for what it is and see the the sword of divine justice looming over their head. And Lord, may they also see the Savior and hear His voice and come unto you and be saved. Lord, may today be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name and for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.